Well, good morning. Glad to be with you today. Um, I want to give a shout out to Ian and Cheryl Graham, who are joining us from Mackay in Queensland. Um, had a quick chat to Ian last night, and they're having a great time not being in lockdown like the rest of us. Uh, thanks for joining us. And anyone else who's joining us from all over the place, outside of the Central Coast, welcome. Uh, we're going to continue today, and, and today I hope you're up for a challenge. Um, there's a, there's a deep challenge in what we're going to look at today, and, and I've wrestled with this this week, and, and it's been a good wrestle. So I just want to encourage you to, to sit in this, to engage with it. Uh, we are continuing our series in John, where our series, uh, as we look at John's gospel, is that you may believe. And John just keeps putting these things at the forefront that we can look at, that we can explore to figure out what is Jesus doing, who is he, what's he up to, what's he calling us to. So we're continuing in chapter 5 today. So grab those Bibles that Candace just talked about and we're going to dig into chapter 5, first 18 verses. And um, I'm going to read this for us and then we'll dig into it a little bit. So chapter 5, verse 1. So afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city near the Sheep Gate was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame or paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a, for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. But he replied, the man who healed me told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who said such a thing as that, they demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, now you are well, so stop sinning or something even worse may happen to you. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. But Jesus replied, My father is always working and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his father, thereby making himself equal with God. There's a fair bit in that, hey? So what we're going to look at this morning is a question and a response and a statement and the Sabbath. Okay, just a little, little few things to look at. So give us some context. This is the third sign that John specifically writes about in his gospel, even though the word sign doesn't actually appear in our passage today. Now, remember we said right at the beginning of this series, there are seven signs that John writes about and describes pointing to who Jesus truly is. Now, the first two signs, the turning the water into wine and the healing of the royal official's son, 
They were done in relative obscurity. Not many people were around to witness what Jesus did at those times. And what we'll also notice is that if you look at um, the passage on the screen, from John chapter 2, verse 11, we read, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs which revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And then in chapter 4, verse 54, this was the second sign Jesus performed. And both those signs are the two things we talked about, the water into wine and the official son being healed. John's gospel account now, he stops keeping count for us. So the first one was named, the second one was named. This is the third sign, but he doesn't write or or spell out for us that this is the third sign. It's actually up to us to start counting as we go. So because Jesus is no longer doing these signs in relative obscurity, he starts to attract attention and, and severe opposition, particularly from the Jewish leaders of the day. And we just read in that passage that that opposition resulted in them plotting how can they kill him. And this is a story that we see John unpack as we go through towards the crucifixion. So where did this third sign happen? I've got a picture on the screen here for you where you can see this is a, an actual a model of what Jerusalem would have looked like in the day of Jesus. And you can see a few key things there. We've got the pools of Bethesda, the place where this is happening. Um, just up from that, you see the sheep gate. That is the gate that the sheep and the livestock would be taken through so they can be sacrificed at the temple. And you can see Temple Mount in your picture as well. So this is the area where it happened. Um, the next picture I just want to show you is what that, what that actually looks like today. So they've done some excavation. Um, now, Jerusalem is a fabulous place and it is built on ruin after ruin after ruin after years and centuries of things being destroyed and rebuilt. And so when they dug down and did some excavation, they actually found a bit of the Pool of Bethesda. Um, So you can see in the blue outline, there was two pools, the southern and the northern pool. And the part that's visible today is is a small part of the southern pool. Um, So they found this. And on this next picture, there's even some remaining porticos or, or porches was the word I used in the translation I read. Your translation may even use the word colonnades. So these things are still there today from the very place where this story took place. So as we continue on, verse 3 tells us that crowds of sick people, blind, lame or paralysed, lay on these porches. Now if you are taking note, you may have noticed in your Bible, verse 4 is missing. I don't know if you noticed that. Um, You may have a footnote that describes why it's missing. And so in the original documents that we have of the New Testament, Not many of the original ones had verse 4 in them. Some did, some didn't. So a lot of Bible translations have to make a decision, do we include it or not? Um, And basically what it does is give some context to why these people were hanging out at this pool. So if we read it in full, we're reading verse 3, saying, um, crowds of sick people, blind, lame or paralyzed, lay on the porches, waiting for a certain movement of the water. 
Verse 4, for an angel of the Lord came from time to time and stirred up the water and the first person to step in after the water was stirred was healed of whatever disease he had. Now, there's a lot in that and I, I, I just sat and went, okay, I need to just take that at face value for what it was. It makes sense that if something miraculous was happening here occasionally, then people who needed the miracle would be drawn to that place. And that's, that's the picture we're seeing here. Lots of sick people, lots of infirm people um, gathered to this place just in case the waters were stirred at the right time when they were there and they had a chance to jump in and potentially be healed. So, you know, just logic for me says, well, that must have been happening. Why would you spend time there? And this guy, 38 years, it mentions. 38 years. Think about that. We're talking about 1983, back from now. 1983. Some of you weren't even born then. 1983. Think about what you were doing then and how long ago that was. That's how long this guy had been hanging out, waiting for his chance to possibly jump in the water and be healed. Now, the religious leaders of the time, they knew their scriptures. And so as John records that the people who were hanging out were blind, lame or paralysed, and then we see a healing of someone in that condition, the religious leaders would have been able to put together um, the prophecies about the Messiah who would deal with people in that condition. I just want to read a quick passage out of Isaiah for you. So this is Isaiah chapter 36. This is about the coming Messiah. And it says, Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong and do not fear, for your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He is coming to save you. And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf The lame will leap like a deer and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. The Messiah was prophesied, foretold that some of the things the Messiah would do to indicate that he is the one from God, the anointed one, we would start to see these sort of healings and miracles happen. And Jesus is performing this very miracle in front of the religious leaders and they could not see it. They knew the scriptures, they knew what to look for and they were looking at the person of Jesus and they were spiritually blind. They were blind to who he was and what he was doing. So as we continue, one of the men had been lying there, verse 5, sick for 38 years. He'd been going nowhere, paralysed. Again, an observant Jew who knows their history, who knows their story, this would ring a bell. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 14, it talks about when the people had been rescued out of Egypt and they came into the wilderness, there was a time after they crossed the Red Sea and they did a few things and they went to Mount Sinai and God gave the commandments and a few issues happened there. And they were heading for the promised land and then a few things went pear-shaped, to put it kindly. And Deuteronomy 2.14 says, for the next 38 years, they wandered aimlessly. 
38 years of just going through the motions, 38 years of helplessness and hopelessness, 38 years of seeing a generation just die off, no goal, no, no object to go towards, a wandering in the desert until God dealt with these people. And so here's this guy, sick for 38 years, hanging around by this pool, doing nothing, losing hope, life just fading away. It's part of the story that we know for the nation of Israel. And this man's condition had become a way of life for him. Think about that. How would he have survived? He couldn't work. He couldn't walk. So our only assumption, and it doesn't give us these details, our only assumption is either people would give him food to survive or maybe he was begging for food or money and would get a little bit here and there and that was enough just to eke out an existence. You know, the, these links to the wilderness story, 38 years where God provided the food for the Israelites. A similar story to this guy. There was provision for him, but not much of an existence. And so verse 6, we read, And so when Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, Would you like to get well? And that just stopped me. There's the question. Would you like to get well? In some ways, it seems like a really obvious question. Here's this guy sitting in this place in the, the, maybe the hope that a miracle could still happen, but maybe not after 38 years. And the question is, would you like to get well? Do you want to get well? I'd love to know how Jesus actually asked that question. Is it with kindness? Is it with a bit of judgment? Is it with... A challenge is it? I'm not sure. I'd love to know how we ask that question. But implied in the question, think of the man's condition, think of the longevity he's been there, think of the hopelessness that's building up. Implied in the question is do you really want things to be different? It's, we can get used to a certain way of life, we can get used to a certain condition. We can get used to some form of dysfunction and it becomes our normal. And Jesus' question, do you want to be well? Are you willing to work for a living? Because he hasn't worked for a living for at least 38 years. If he was to be made well, his life would change. He could not lie by a pool for another 38 years and do nothing if he's made well. So there's some implied depth in this question of Jesus. Are you willing to embrace the responsibility for yourself and your actions if you're made well? Are you willing to count the cost of what it will mean for you to live differently, to live uh, uh, something different to what you've known for such a long time? And there's the question, would you like to get well? I would imagine if I had been there for 38 years in that condition, my first response that would just fly out is, yes, yes, please. Can you really? That's not what we read. Let's go to verse 7. Here's the response. I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. 
I can't. I can't. I remember going through a phase when our children were little when they would say, I can't, and that was something we wanted to correct. That not to have that attitude of I can't, but have an attitude of how can I find a way? We would have expected his answer to be yes, but it was a bunch of excuses. He blames his circumstances. He blames other people. No one was there to help him. Others were getting in first. It wasn't his fault. There's nothing I can do. And we can be like that too, can't we? In the situations we find ourselves in. Nearly take on a victim mentality that it's not my fault. I can't do anything about it. It's just the way it is. He seems like at this stage that there's no compulsion to help himself. There's no compulsion to change. There's no hope of being healed. He's become resigned to just his lot in life and he's just eking out an existence. And unfortunately, we have the ability to live like that as well. But there's got to be something in what happened because when Jesus did say to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. He did. So something's happened in here. There there was some hope still evident. There was some potentially taking Jesus at his word and believing, but we we read that he doesn't even know who Jesus is. But something in him responded. And he gets up and walks, and as a good Jewish man, the first thing he does is he goes to the temple. Because when you're healed, according to Jewish custom and law, you have to go and present yourself to the priest at the temple and present an offering. And and so it seems like that's what he's done. And now the statement. So in verse 14, we read, So afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, Now you are well, stop sinning, or something even worse may happen to you. What comes to mind when you read that? Now you are well. The excuses are gone. They've been removed. You've been given a new life, a second chance. The excuses are gone. Now that you're well, stop sinning. Now, the word sin and the word sinning in this context We've talked about this a few times in the past. That the best example or the best way to, to nuance the meaning of that, it's just, just think archery um, and thinking about aiming at the bullseye, aiming at the mark, aiming at the target. Um, and, and the word sin is, is to miss the mark, to miss the target. And so Jesus is saying to him, now you will stop sinning. Stop missing the mark. Stop missing the point of why you're here. Stop missing the the, uh, availability of living life with God, with purpose, with meaning. Stop just eking out an existence, going through the motions. It reminds me of, you know, we've just had the Olympics and we've just had the Paralympics and there have been some marvellous things that we got to watch in that. Now, I don't know if you've heard this story, but in the 2004 Olympic Games in Athens, no, no, sorry, that was 
2004? Athens, yeah, in Athens. Um, there was an American athlete. He was a shooter in the 50-metre pistol uh, shooting. His name's Matt Emmons. And he was in the three-position air rifle event. So they do some shots from their stomachs, some shots from their knees, some shots uh, standing. Uh, 50-metre target with an air rifle. And he had done really well and it came up to his last shot. He was leading, he was in first place. All he had to do was hit the target and he was guaranteed the gold medal. And so he, he stood there and he lined up and he got it in his sights and he got it through the scope and he had the bullseye in, in, in mind and he pulled the trigger and straight into the bullseye. And he turned around and he saw his name go from first on the board to eighth. And he oh, what's going on? And then he was informed that he actually didn't shoot his target, he shot the target in the corridor next to him. So he got nothing. Didn't win, came eighth. And sometimes I think we can be like that in our life. We think we're aiming for the right thing. We think that the things we're pursuing, the things we're chasing after, the kind of life we're trying to build for ourselves is what we should be aiming for. And just like that guy at the Olympics, we can think we're hitting the mark and we're completely missing it. We're aiming for the wrong target. And I get a sense of that for this guy here. Jesus is calling him to lift his sights to go, hang on, I've given you a second chance here. Aim for what is most true. Aim to step into what is the greatest reality and that is a life with God. A life with God. Serving God, serving others. That's the opportunity you have now. Stop sinning. Or something worse may happen to you. And the worst possible thing that could happen to a Jewish person at that time and any person living between then and now every single one of us today, the worst thing that can happen is, is this separation from God. So if this man, Jesus saying to him, now that you're healed, stop sinning, start aiming for the right target. Give your life to serving God, loving God, loving others. Because if you don't choose that, then the ultimate result is there's something worse than even being paralysed by a pool for 38 years. There's something worse than that, and that is that eternal separation from God. And then all this happens on the Sabbath. We've looked at the question, we've looked at the response, we've looked at the statement, and then the Sabbath. So at the end of verse 9, we're reading, but this miracle happened on the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. They were more concerned with the man ignoring their own rules and regulations than seeing God at work, than seeing and acknowledging the miracle that had just happened. And it's easy to look at the reaction of these Jewish leaders and condemn their response. But don't we do the same sometimes? Don't we at times want to place our expectations on others? Don't we at times want to turn a blind eye to maybe what God's doing in someone's life 
but try to put on to them the way we think they should be living or doing or saying or not saying. This was challenging for me. I, I read this and I thought, I can't believe these Jewish leaders. How insensitive of them, how cruel of them, how narrow-minded of them. So verse 16, so the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. But Jesus replied, my father is always working and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his father, thereby making himself equal with God. And from this point on, as we continue through the Gospel of John, we see this become a bigger and bigger issue. Who Jesus was, was a threat to the established rulers and authority of, of the Jewish nation. And they wanted to kill him. It's funny. They have a go at this guy for carrying a mat on the Sabbath, which is against their rules. wasn't actually against the rules that Moses gave in the law. It was against the extra rules they had drawn up. But at the same time, they're happy to be plotting a murder on the Sabbath. We'll leave that where it is. So in closing, and here's the challenge for me. How does this speak to us? How does it speak to you? How does it speak to me? Is it possible to have an encounter with God and not be changed? We don't know the outcome of this man's life. We don't know if he responded to Jesus with that challenge. We don't know if he started following Jesus or acknowledging him as Lord and Messiah. We don't know. How many people do you know who at some stage have expressed a belief in God, but their lives are lived out in such a way that maybe that's not true. See, in John's Gospel so far, we've discovered that belief in Jesus is not the same as agreeing to a few statements about him. It is an ongoing day-by-day disposition to align yourself to the reality of who Jesus is, of his kingdom being present and available, being obedient to his commands, being continually transformed into his likeness through the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's a disposition of life that declares Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of all, including my life. And I live in such a way that I demonstrate that to be true. Again, it's not about being perfect and being all holy and moly, it's it's about just having that disposition that Jesus is Lord. I'm not Lord. So the question Jesus asked, do you want to get well, is one we actually have to consider. Do we want to experience the kind of life that Jesus offers? Do we truly want to experience that kind of life? Or are we content with the kind of life that we're aiming for? Maybe that wrong target. Are we willing to live differently? Are we willing to change the way we think about our life 
and what life is about. Are we willing to stop making excuses for our situation? Are we willing to allow Jesus to lead us and shape us for his purposes, not for our own gain and reputation and prestige? Are we willing to let go of what is familiar and comfortable and dysfunctional if it means having greater alignment with God's intent for us? Some of these are hard things to answer. Are we willing to live for God and others in such a way that we partner with Jesus in his mission in the world? Are we willing to do that? As I said, I found this very challenging. Are we ready to put our belief into action? See, in this story, we see the paralyzed man reflecting the nation of Israel at that time. Spiritually speaking, it was weak and impotent and blind and waiting hopelessly for something to happen. It seems the man's will and spirit was as paralyzed as his body. And then he encounters Jesus. I love how Candace shared at the beginning just that idea that Jesus met her in the messiness of life. That's what he does really well. We have to allow him in. It seems the Jewish leaders in this story were paralysed as well in sensing God being at work and God's spirit moving. And this is where that statement from Jesus seems to make sense. Stop sinning. Repent. Change the way you think about your life. Change the way you think about God. Change the way you think about a life with God because your current disposition and choices will result in the worst thing imaginable, eternal separation from God if you don't. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus sums this up beautifully with a statement that we read a little further along in chapter 5. Jesus is talking to the Jewish leaders who are responsible to teach the scriptures, to interpret the scriptures, to understand um, that the scriptures are pointing to the Messiah and to lead the people in how to respond to God in that way, he's talking to them when that's their role. And when we dig a little bit further into chapter 5, which we'll cover in a week or two, but just turn to verses 39 and 40 in chapter 5, and it says this, Jesus says to these religious leaders, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And there, I think, is our main takeaway point for today's passage. It is in Jesus, the person of Jesus, that we find true life. The paralyzed man in our story today had Jesus personally approach him heal his broken condition and invite him into real life, a life with God, a life that is no longer self-focused and full of excuses and complaints. 
And the Jewish leaders who witnessed this had an opportunity to see God at work in a new way, a way that pointed to everything they had been hoping for and waiting for. But their pride and their spiritual blindness prevented them from seeing Jesus for who he truly was. So let our response from this passage today be one that is Jesus-focused. It is Jesus who invites us to believe. It is Jesus who offers true life. It is Jesus who has the capacity to provide the kind of healing that we all need. The kind of healing that is most important. The healing of our separation from God, which is expressed through sharing his life, a resurrection life, a life with God. Let me pray for us. So Father, I thank you that you see us, you see us in whatever condition we find ourselves in. You see us as we truly are and you love us. And in that love for us, you have an invitation, an invitation into your life, a life with you. A life that does not promise that all our problems will go away, but a life that promises you'll be with us in those problems. You will be with us. You will never leave us. And so just like this paralysed man we read today, God, I pray that we would see your invitation for what it was, for what it is, that we would accept it, we would step into it, And we would live a life that is focused on you, a life that is surrendered to you, and a life that you want to use for your glory. So help us be the people that you see us to be. Help us move away from the excuses, the dysfunction, the comfort, the things that stop us from stepping into what you have for us. And I pray that you'll encourage us to do that with one another as your children, as your church. Amen.